You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hey everybody, and welcome back. Welcome all of our first-time guests. My name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here, as always. If this is your first time, I sure hope it's not your last. Real quick, though, before we get going, today is not only Father's Day. It is, as you may know, Juneteenth. Uh, marking the date, if you don't know what that is, marking the date of June 19th, 1865, something that happened right here in Texas and Galveston where President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation made its way and declared all peoples finally free. And Juneteenth was something originally celebrated, you should know, by churches and by Christians as evidence that God had been faithful and answered the prayers and the sacrifices of many. So for this today, we give thanks as well. Amen. Amen. Yeah, well, let's get going here. Uh, In our passage, the passage on which our teaching is based today is going to be Jonah chapter 2 and a smidge of chapter 3. Everybody say smidge. Smidge. That's just, yeah. Here we go. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I'll make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. That's the reading of God's word. All his people said, amen, amen. Yeah, we are looking here for a few weeks at the life, at the story, the book of someone named Jonah. He lived around 750 BC. He was a Hebrew prophet, but by all accounts, Jonah was not a very good Hebrew prophet. He was so bad at being a prophet, we'll put it like this, were Jonah a sports franchise, he would have been near the bottom of the prophet standings, like his prophet record was not a good one. Fewer prophet wins, more prophet losses. Why? God had told Jonah, we saw it last week in chapter one, to go and bring a message of hope to the great city of Nineveh. But Jonah wouldn't go. He instead ran away from God, went in literally the opposite direction of the great city. So God sent a great storm, it said. And when the great storm didn't get through to him, Jonah's thrown overboard by the sailors. God then sends a great fish to swallow him and keep him alive. Same word every time, great city, great storm, great fish. Some of you are like now, well, the next time God tells me he has great plans for my life, 
I'm not sure I want them. <laughs> Again, maybe, maybe not. It all depends on your definition of what a great life is. Jonah's idea of a great life was different than God's. And because of that, we read down, down, down goes Jonah. The whole trajectory here of his life is on a downward spiral, and the text makes this clear. He goes down to Joppa. He gets on a ship. He goes down below deck to sleep while a storm rages overhead. Then he goes down into the sea and finally down inside a fish. He's a runaway prophet. He does everything in his power to avoid obeying God. And yet, incredibly, at the end of this famous section here, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And this time, Jonah receives it. He obeys it. He actually goes to Nineveh like the lights are back on. The tower's back up. He's broadcasting again. He's doing now what he could not do before. What has happened to Jonah? What happened to him was something that literally gave him a reason to shout. It was this. Jonah had an encounter with the grace of God. Jonah had an encounter with the grace of God. It made him shout. And I want to tell you, if you see this rightly, understand this rightly, experience this for yourself, you just might shout too. It's kind of my goal today to give you maybe yet another reason to shout. So I want to take a look at this thing that changed Jonah's life called the grace of God. We'll take a look at it in three parts today by trying to ask and answer three questions. First, what is grace? Like, what is it? How do we define it? Number two, what does grace do? Like, how does it change us? How does it affect us? And finally, how do we receive it? Where do we get it? Where does it come from? Let's begin here. Number one, here we go. What's our first question here? It's what is grace? Jonah sort of outlines it like this in verse six. He says, to the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Here's the word, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. So here's the picture. Jonah's saying, I was in one place, then I found myself in another. I was shut out, God opened the door. I was trapped down low, God brought me up higher. God, you made a way where there was no way. You did for me what I could never have done for myself. That's the picture that's what happened to Jonah. Therefore, grace can be defined like this. Here it is. Grace is undeserved, unobligated, cosmic hospitality. Let's say that all together. Actually, read this with me. Grace is undeserved, unobligated, cosmic hospitality. Let me break it down in two parts. First, grace is both undeserved and unobligated. Why must it be both? Three quick case studies. Number one, let's say you are a manager. You're a boss uh, at some company somewhere and one of your employees is leaving for whatever reason. Let's say they're relocating, maybe they're retiring, and on their last day, you have one last final meeting with them and in that meeting, you hand them a final check for exactly the amount that it should be. Now you hand it over the money, but is that grace? No, why? <laughs> you were obligated to pay them. 
case study number two. Let's say that on that same person's last day, when you gave them that final check because you are such a great manager uh, or leader or whatever, you throw them a big party. Yay. Is that grace? No. (laughs) Because while you were not obligated to throw that person a party, they did something to earn the celebration. They kind of deserved it. Case study number three. But let's say that after that employee left your company, after you handed them that check, they used that final check to buy a house right next to yours. (laughs) But after they move in, they begin to be the worst neighbor ever. Their trash gets all over your lawn. They don't pick it up. Uh, Your kid's sandbox becomes their cat's litter box. Like all six cats, I know, bad, right? They play their music unbelievably loud all hours of the night. You politely ask them to finally turn it down. What do they do? Crank it up louder. You merely like push play on your jam box thing in your kitchen. They call the police on you. (laughs) But then you hear that your former employee turned bad neighbor gets super sick. What do you do? You go over, you mow their lawn, you cook them meals, you get them medicine, you pray for them. Is that grace? Yes. Yes. Why? Because it is both unobligated and undeserved. And that's what we see here. Jonah, he's done nothing to deserve the rescue. In fact, he's only done the opposite. But God reached down into Jonah's life even when he was not obligated. But that's not all grace is. Grace is also second. It's cosmic hospitality. The Hebrew word for grace is the word, you may know, it's the word hesed. And hesed is used in the story in specific of two brothers, you may know the story, of Jacob and Esau back in Genesis to describe what happens when the undeserving receives something from someone who was deserving. One brother, Jacob, had robbed his older brother Esau, cheated him out of his rights, and the stealing of those rights set Esau on his dark collision course in life. His life got way worse. It didn't get better. He fell apart over it. The brothers were separated over it. But when they finally meet again many years later, Esau, we read, didn't just forgive Jacob. Esau let Jacob back into his heart, back into his family. And how did Jacob, the one who was the wrongdoer, describe that moment? Jacob said, Esau, you have shown me hesed. You have shown me grace, favor. You open the door to your heart, reopen the door to your family. It's like you've shown me this kind of hospitality, a homecoming that was unobligated, undeserved, and now I'm received back into your life. That's how I said, that's grace. And years ago, some of you may remember this, this quote, when an actress named Sally Field, a little older now, but she played the lady who was Forrest Gump's mama. If you know that, so you're picturing her now. Yeah. It's a younger crowd. First service was like, oh yes, I remember her. Yeah, okay. <laughs> when she won her second Oscar in five years, you know what she said, it's become kind of famous. When she won, is what she said. You like me right now. You like me. She kept going on and on about how people liked her. And grace, in a sense, is like that. It's finding out that God likes you right now. He really likes you, except you've done nothing to deserve it. And he's un 
obligated to give it to you. Grace is unobligated, undeserved, cosmic hospitality. You, Jonah said, God, have cast me down, though I deserved it, but you brought me up when I didn't. That's grace. And that's why Jonah was shouting about it. Number one, that's what grace is. But number two, let's go on, ask, what does it do to us? How does it affect us? What does grace do when we receive unobligated, undeserved cosmic hospitality? Two things fundamentally change first. We're going to look at them. Grace, we're going to see here, grace changes our relationship with the world, the people around us. Look at verse eight. Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. All right. Back in 2004, some of you may remember the story, there was a Dutch filmmaker in the Netherlands. His name was Theo van Gogh. He was the great-grandson of someone named Theo van Gogh, who was the brother of Vincent the Famous Painter. And Theo van Gogh, the younger, was actually killed. He was assassinated by a Muslim extremist when Theo had made a short film critiquing radical Islam's treatment of women. Okay, And in the aftermath of Theo's death and murder, there was a massive uptick of violence in the Netherlands against religion, against both churches and mosques, including, worst of all, the bombing of a Muslim school where children were killed. And the Dutch, up to this point, of course, had prided themselves on being this open and tolerant society, and now tensions were pushed to the extreme, to the max. And in the middle of all of this, a Dutch pastor by the name of Keys Sibrandi did something fairly radical, especially considering his own background. He was a a highly, extremely conservative Protestant minister. He lived in an area marked by rising crime and poverty, brought there from some poor Muslim immigrants. But that week, after the school was bombed, Reverend Sibrandi decided he was going to walk, and he did, walk to the Muslim mosque in his own neighborhood. And he went up, and he knocked on the door, and he announced to all the Muslims inside to their shock, of course, that he was going to stand guard outside the mosque every night until the attack ceased. And he gained some publicity from doing this, and he started to rally other churches and Christians and ministers to do the same, and they did. And these Christian pastors encircled and guarded the mosque every night for three months. Why did he do it? One uh, secular interviewer tried to find out. He asked Pastor Keys, he said, uh, Keys, was this, this some sort of like personal experience you've had that caused you to do it. You felt empathy for these people. He said, no, because up till now he had apparently had fewer to no relationships with any Muslims. He was asked, well, was it your nation's like liberal, secular call for multiculturalism that affected you? No, he said basically that was irrelevant to him. So why did he do it? Why did he push past his reluctance and risk his life for those unlike him? Why did he do it? He replied this simply. He said, Jesus, Jesus commanded me to love my neighbor and even my enemy too. That is showing undeserved, unobligated, cosmic hospitality to someone not like you because receiving the grace of God just changes how you see those around you. Look at Jonah in this verse. He's received hesed, grace for himself. Now in verse eight, what's he talking about? He's talking about how anybody 
who gives up their idols can receive grace, can receive the same. This is a big deal because that word hesed also has a technical meaning in the Hebrew scriptures. Hesed doesn't just have a relational use between humans. It has a special use for how God related to his people. He had a special covenant love for special covenant people, the Jewish people, who had, back in Exodus, put down their idols and made a covenant with him. And as far as Jonah had believed his whole life, Hesed was only for people like him. But now look what he's saying. What Jonah, the book shows us. Hesed for anyone who smashes their idols. Because remember, who had gotten rid of their idols? Come on, chapter one, back on board that deck of that ship. The pagan sailors, they smashed their idols. Who's gonna need Hesed in the next chapter? Those Ninevites, hmm? In other words, Jonah is seeing that Hesed, God's covenant, love, grace, favor, aren't just for his own race, own culture, own religion, own nation. God's grace is for everyone. It's for the whole world. And seeing this changes how we must relate to people around us. Grace changes our relationship with the world. And right here, please, all God's people ought to say, amen, yeah. But ultimately, grace changes our relationship with the world because at a more fundamental level, grace changes our relationship with ourselves. Jonah prays this, what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, and here it comes, the Bible in five words, salvation comes from the Lord. Whole message of the Bible, front to back in this one verse. Here's why this is so important. That's why. Because humans, I'm going to unpack this, humans come in with a giant problem. Here it is. We don't know how to relate to ourselves. We struggle to relate to the world because we struggle to relate to ourselves. Here's what I mean. Most people in today's culture believe that when it comes, everyone, when it comes to spirituality, everybody's more or less on a scale. Like with non-religious people way over here and fundamentalists way on the other end with most people kind of somewhere in between like sliding back and forth. But Jonah 2.9 gives us a keyhole to which we can see the radical, unsettling message of Christianity which says that there are not two kinds of people in the world but three. Three, in other words, there are the religious, <laughs> the non-religious, and then there are Christians. So what's the difference? Distinction is this, both non-religious and religious people at their core are deeply immersed in what all humans do, which is some form of self-salvation. Some form of trying to justify, save themselves, feel good about themselves. The non-religious, say skeptical atheist person, is at least usually honest about this. Thank you if this is you released for being this, because they tell you flat out, I don't need a savior, I don't want a savior, I'm good. I'm fine how I am. In other words, the non-religious person, generally speaking, rejects the idea of the need for cosmic hospitality. They don't need to be brought in. They say, I don't need anybody to save me. They say, I can be good without God. It's a common phrase. And of course, we should acknowledge there is good that any human can do regardless of faith background. And let's be super honest here and say and acknowledge that someone who is whatever, whoever, skeptic, atheist, can be sometimes, maybe many times, a better person than some who call themselves Christians. But what is meant by that statement, I can be good without God, is something way deeper. They're saying, 
if there is salvation, don't believe there is, but if there were, I can do it myself. On the other hand, there's a second kind of a person, the highly religious person who says, oh yeah, I need some cosmic hospitality, not okay how I am, but they go about getting it through being as good as they possibly can be. Maybe through church attendance, mosque attendance, synagogue attendance, ancestor worship. They may say they serve God, love the divine, serve God, love God, but when things don't go their way, what do you see? Anger. Anger, and where does anger come from? Anger comes from believing that somebody owes you something. Hmm? Anger's the emotional means you use to recover what's been taken from you that you feel like you deserve back. Someone steals your reputation, you get angry. Give me my, my good name back, they steal your money. Give me my money back, you get real angry. In other words, you can only be angry at someone when, they, when you feel like they owe you. When someone's obligated to do something for you. Religious people, therefore, may recognize their need for cosmic hospitality, but underneath believe that they deserve it because of how much they've done, how good they are. God's grace is obligated to them. But look at what Jonah says here. When he talks, it's like he's this third kind of new person in the world. Like grace has changed how he sees himself, at least for the moment. He shouts this, salvation comes where? From the Lord. This, the language here means that salvation belongs to God, like it's his personal possession. He gives away. As Jonah's saying then, salvation doesn't just come from me. Salvation doesn't come from my ethnicity, from my race, being a Jew. It doesn't come from me being even a good person. Salvation comes only from God, from God. He saves, not humans. See, Jonah here has been humbled when he finally realizes, oh, he couldn't save himself. And by the way, this is, it ought to be, the identifying mark of a life that's been touched and shaped by the grace of God. A deep humility about themselves and towards those around them. There's not pride about rule breaking, like how much we can get away with, nor pride about rule keeping, how good we are. No, no, grace changes how we relate to ourselves. I am what I am, the apostle Paul said, by what? The grace of God. Paul's relationship with others was changed because his relationship with himself was first. Finally, how do we receive it? Where does all of this begin? Where do we get it from? Well, okay, where do we get it with Jonah? Where did Jonah get it? The grace of God began to flow into his life is right here, this is the key word, when he looks, he ponders, he meditates, he stares at something. He says in verse four, he mentions this thing twice. He says, yet I'll look again towards your holy temple. He says temple twice in this little prayer. Again, what's he doing? Why is he looking over and over again at the temple? Well, what was the Jewish temple? Well, the temple in Jonah's day was a visual, concrete picture of what salvation is and what grace means. Here it is. At the very center of that building, of that built place was a place called the Holy of Holies, a special room. And in the center of that special room in the Holy of Holies was the ark. It was the box of God's covenant. And yes, it was the thing, yes, that Indiana Jones kept the Nazis from getting, and now is apparently hiding out in a nondescript U.S. military situation and installation somewhere. Okay. 
pointing at God's ark more than anything else at the center of the center of the center. God's ark represented who he was. And do you know what was in the heart of the center of the center of the center? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were inside the ark that Moses initially received. What this is telling us is this, that at the very heart, the center of who God is, is his moral perfection, his moral beauty. God is morally perfect. That is such good news. And he demands that you and I be morally perfect in the same way that a judge demands that people not murder, not steal. Why? Because it matters how we treat one another. Again, you want a God like this. You need a God like this. You don't want some slim, shady for a God who just sweeps things like holocausts under the rug. Come on. Atrocities under the rug. You want a God who desires to judge evil because he loves good so much. God is, once more, morally perfect, beautiful. It's such good news. And he's always longed to relate to people, bring his presence into their lives. But do you know, in Jonah's day, the only place where God's direct presence would come was in the temple over the ark over those commandments and here's what he's saying. God's saying, I only relate to people over my word, over my law. If you're gonna disregard my moral law, if you wanna say it's relative to whatever you want it to be, our conversation is gonna be at least put on pause for a while. God's saying, I only relate to people over my word, my moral law. You say two things about that. First, like Morgan, that's super offensive to me. Okay. It's offensive to think I only relate to God over his word. It was kind of, and I understand that, but maybe, maybe offense is what we need sometimes. Carrie and I, were, we were talking about this the other day about how at its core, Jonah is a story about how God offends people. Specifically his followers. After all, why did Jonah run? He was offended by God's word, right? Jonah wanted to keep God's word from going to a certain people, to the Ninevites. And Carrie and I were talking about this idea about God offending us. And then she brought up something we saw in a museum once upon a time. The Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. Something called the Slave Bible. The Slave Bible, if you've never heard of it, was the version of the Bible that British slave owners created for their slaves in the West Indies during that period in history. And the British slave owners intentionally cut out vast portions of scripture. Anything, of course, connected to the Exodus, anything to the freedom of slaves, anything connected to words like liberation, freedom, justice, they only kept in anything connected to words and ideas like submission and obedience. It included only about half of the New Testament. It cut out, as you might imagine, again, passages like Ephesians 3.28, which says, For in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. All are one in Christ. Cut that bit out. Cut out the book of Revelation, its entirety, with the hope, come on, of a future, new heavens, new earth, uh, where uh, there's a world made right and just by God. And that the slave Bible included only about 10% of the Old Testament. You think, man, the Old Testament offends me now. Well, they, they saw something in it, which is what this. What did the prophets speak about over and over? 
justice, right? It cut out this book, the book of Jonah, about a God who cares for all peoples. Why did those slave owners cut out those passages? You know why? It's because those, those passages offended them. Those passages threatened them. They knew if their slaves were exposed to the whole Bible, it might start a revolution. The slaves might go free. Those owners would not be able to live just how they wanted to anymore. Now, I want to tell you this. Every person and every culture does this in his own, her own, its own way. Because every culture has something in its own heart that's idolatrous. John Calvin called the human art a factory of idols. We just keep making them up. Something in every culture is worshiping something besides God. Every culture wants to keep the parts of scripture that it likes and cut out the parts that it doesn't. Today in the West, it's, today our modern day, it's kind of switched up. We like way more those passages about the Exodus. We love it. Come on, Moses, setting those captives free. Let my people go. We love that. We love the parts about forgiveness. We love the parts about love. God is love, and that's all true. But every culture cuts out some part of God's word. For example, in general, think about it. Today, conservatives don't like what the Bible says about caring for the world, caring for the environment that God made because that's super inconvenient. It would get in the way of our money. But didn't call, God call Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden, not destroy it? He did. Liberals on the other hand don't like what God says. The Bible says about sex and gender. Like, it's super regressive sounding. But doesn't the whole aim of scripture claim that God reserves sexual expression to one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage? It does. But we withhold whatever part offends us. And what happens? What's the result? It's the same thing that happened with the slaves. Something or someone remains oppressed in some way, bound in sin in some way. But it's only when we receive God for who he fully is, when we receive all of his word to us, can freedom come, can grace come. In other words, to put a super fine point on it, if you want a God who has authority over the slave trader, whose word can set the captive free, who can tell the slave owner how to live his life, you have to have a God who has authority over you, who can tell you how to live your life, and whose whole word can set you free. Come on, the, the, the converted slave trader, John Newton, you may know the name. He wrote the hymn, The Whole World Knows. The whole world loves to sing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Why? It didn't really need to save a self-actualized, fully expressive, self-determined, highly educated, non-superstitious person like me. No, it saved. Come on, what? A wretch like me. Grace. Wretch. Another hymn, Just As I Am. You may know that one. It goes like this. Just as I am. No need to change. God's word offends. It drives me insane. No, 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 sorry. No. Just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. That rock of ages. My carefully constructed, self-curated online image in my hand I bring, simply to my politics, I cling. No, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross, I cling. I think you get it. If you've never been offended by your need for grace, 
It's likely you've never received it. See, until Jonah was offended by God's word, he never realized his own need for it. He never shouted about grace until he got real mad about it first. Couldn't sing about it until he saw his own need to be saved by it. To do it, Jonah looked at the temple, (laughs) the place that told him, you need a substitute to save you. And that provided a substitute for him. And then he started to sing. This isn't just offensive sometimes. You say, this is impossible. It's impossible to fully keep the law of God. And I want to tell you, it is. (laughs) It is. And that is why Jesus of Nazareth came. Jesus is the temple with skin on. He was like a, he's everything the shadow of the temple pointed to. He's the literal meeting place of God and man. No longer locked in a building, out in public now. The temple was just a picture of who Jesus would came to be. He's the meeting place. He's the mercy seat. He's the lawful field. He's the blood sprinkled. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's all of it. He has kept the law perfectly. Love the Lord is God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as self. And now... We come to him, look to him. He gives us his supernatural power to do the same. In her book, uh, Anne Lamont's the author, in her book, Hallelujah Anyway, Anne Lamont tells the incredible story of a woman named Lynn Twist. I love this. Lynn Twist is an activist for, uh, for, for global hunger causes and she talks about an African village in Senegal she was trying to help. And it was in crisis. This village's water supplies were gone. Uh, its wells were running dry. This particular village was hours out into that Singalese desert where almost nothing grew in the village because of its remote location, was not eligible for government help, and because it was so remote, even if Lynn Twist's group brought you know, schlepped thousands of gallons of water out there. It wouldn't help for long. So they drove out to the village to find a solution. And when they got there, they found the men drumming and the women sitting in a circle. And Lynn's group, called the Hunger Project, offered to relocate all of them, but the men in the tribe refused. Then strangely, these women began to speak independently about a lake beneath the sand. They believed because so many of these women had seen it for their own selves, again, independently. They'd seen this in a vision, that there was a lake beneath the sand that would provide water for all of them, but the men would let them dig for it. So Lynn Twist group got involved and negotiated like kind of a truce between the women and the men. And the men, with a kind of a collective male eye roll, were persuaded to allow the women to start digging. She said, over the next year, a year, these women dug in the sand with their hands and with these tiny shovels. And the men rationed the remaining water and waited and watched. And after a year of digging... The women found it. It's a true story. They came to this underground lake in the sand, just like they had seen in their visions. Now they have a well and a water system. It cares for other villages. There's farming. There's education. People are reading and writing. And one group, here's the point, one group of people in that village, please don't read anything into the ginger here. Nothing is meant by it. One group of people sat and refused to humble themselves to find a miracle. They would rather stay thirsty, live by their own rules, and die than ask for help. One group saw their need for help and believed there was a miracle at the bottom. 
Anne Lamont put it like this. She said, a huge shift like this often begins, look at this word, with desperation. The gateway to the movement of grace. There can be no force. Force is just self-will externalized. Like no one can make you. We can only be thirsty. And somehow, like these men, we become willing to receive. Jonah opened his heart to receive when he was at the bottom. What about you? What about me? Desperation, thirst, hunger are good things. They open our hearts to the gateway of the grace of God. We take a moment and pray for us. We'll find it today, maybe even right now. Lord, we come in Jesus' name and we thank you so much for the challenge of your servant Jonah. Your work with anybody. Even if your Jonahs are all you have to work with, you'll work with them. And still, you'll bring about good in the world. Lord, I'm praying for those of us today who may find ourselves like a Jonah at the bottom of something, buried some hurt or pain or loss, difficulty and distance. That we would just believe there's actually, there's a miracle beneath the sand for us. It's grace at the bottom. If that's you and you're saying, I need the grace of God today to save me in some way, my life, my heart, my health, my family, something else, whether you're online or you're in the room, would you just raise your hand right now now say oh Jesus save me salvation belongs to you Lord I need your grace empower me free me help me God thank you for being that for your people for your church in Jesus name I pray these things Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.